So due to the fact that I was reminded when I got here that tomorrow is my birthday, I I, um, naturally, as all humans do, I started to think. (laughs) And when I thought, then I felt... And then I noticed what I was thinking about, noticed what I was feeling, and it uh, started to to percolate as a as a some stray thoughts that I thought might be useful tonight. I'll just share a little bit of my process while I was sitting, because I, whenever my eyes are closed or whenever I am in the immediate present, and I would say this is also true for you, whenever your eyes are closed or whenever you are in the immediate present, which is the only reality, really. uh, I'll speak for myself again, but what I'm saying about myself, I think, would include you. But when my eyes are closed, as they were then, and when I'm in what, I, what we call the present moment, I, I clearly do not have an age. I cannot find time at all, really, in real time, <laughs> in non-conceptual time. There's no time. And therefore, since there's no time, um, there's plenty of time. There's lots of space, Lots of sense of freedom. And it's only when I'm caught in conceptual time that my mind tends to contract a little bit. So when my eyes were closed, I couldn't find an age. But then the thought arose, wow, I'm going to be 61 years old tomorrow. And in that very moment, I, one of the ways of talking about it is I incarnated as a person. I took birth in my mind as the one who was born on such and such date, October 8th, 1953. And I've lived a life, and I'm, uh, it started back there, and it's um, passing through where I am now on my way to whenever that day is that I die. Now, that's the story of me. That is the that is the the story of my unique individual situation. But it is not the it is not my deepest nature, and it's not your deepest nature. My deepest nature, as I discovered with my eyes closed and before I gave rise to that thought of myself, my deepest nature was um, timeless awake, without height, without depth, without color, without shape, without inside, without outside, without beginning, without end, um, free, deathless, unconditioned. And, and then I, when I was sitting with my eyes closed, I just said, okay, I'm going to see if I can disrupt this, see if this is so then I tried to think of other thoughts, and it didn't seem to. It still didn't disrupt that that um, that ever-present sense of what we sometimes call awareness, 
And so then I tried to listen to sounds, and if there was awareness of sound, it didn't, sounds didn't interrupt the awareness. Sensations didn't, couldn't interrupt awareness. Nothing can interrupt awareness. And I realized, wow, nothing. This is really more of what I, this is more the bedrock of my nature than, than even this body and even this history and this situation that I'm in as somebody who was born and who will die. Yet, at the same time, I realized I could not, unless I was born, unless I was, unless I had the unique human experience that I'm having, having had certain parents and certain conditioning, I couldn't have these thoughts about being unconditioned, unborn, deathless, timeless. So these two realities are constantly intermingling. The reality where each of us is an individual with an individual situation, an individual story, formed by all the, all the conditions of our life, everything that's ever happened. And that is the, and that is the, um, that's us as a person. And that us as a person, in a, in, the, in a sense, is just an idea. But it's a very compelling one. And it's, um, and it's one that we have to very, we have to respect. We have to love. Because that's what's true. At the same time, we also um, exist outside of time and are innately or intrinsically or primordially free. And that is the point of our practice, is to both realize that sense of freedom, at the same time know that without our humanity, without our basic humanity, with our perceptions and, and our senses, our good hearts, our intelligence, um, we, could not, we couldn't realize our deeper nature. And this is a very precious condition that we are in, actually being able to sit like this, being able to talk about the Dharma, you know, there, there are so many problems, so much pain everywhere. And the fact that we can enjoy this present moment in safety, in um, relatively good health, uh, it's rare and precious. There are beings in this world who, can't, who couldn't meet like this. So to also to appreciate our precious human birth and condition and know how fragile our condition is, our situation, how easy things change, our e- how easy our resources change, our health changes, um, our economy changes, and to seize this precious opportunity to both embrace our humanity and realize our deepest nature. So then I was that led to uh, another little chain of thoughts. I was thinking about all the people that I meet with every day, have been for all these almost 30 years of leading the group. I've also been mentoring people and meeting people in a counseling role. And, and 
all through the years, I've been meeting and really, I would say, loving each person. That It's almost impossible not to love each person and to see both their unique humanity as, as well as their, their Buddha nature, their, the light that shines in, in each of us. And over, the, over all these years, I see a kind of commonality, not that anyone is common, but there are certain common themes, common humanity. And the common humanity is that we tend to, um, because life changes so much, we tend to have a lot of, we have a lot of times in our lives where we have a lot of, how can I say this? There are many times in our life where we have the experience of being uh, uncertain or stuck or um, creatively stuck or existentially stuck or some way that we're feeling that we're not, we're not living our purpose. Any of you ever have that feeling? That you're that your work is not value-driven, that you're, um, that you're just living a little bit apart from the flow of life, that something's a little off. And it often gets exacerbated by the narrative that there's something, not only is there something off or something wrong, but there's something wrong with me. And then that tends to lead to a... a a further narrative that, and an innocent search for relief. And, and I'm sometimes the beneficiary of that search for, for relief because I get to then receive you and love you. And so then I, I get all the goodies of being able to, to uh, hopefully at some point in the span of meeting, be able to point out the good news as well as be able to, to receive with as much um, kindness as I can uh, the, and resonance as I can with the, the, the difficulty of living life. By and large, most of the training I see that, that uh, people come to me with is the training of trying to think our way through it, trying to think our way back to wholeness, think our way back to that creative epiphany or that, um, that feeling of being okay. And the work world teaches us how to, how to set up a, a system of working it out. Of, I've heard somebody told me recently about white, doing a whole whiteboard thing and, and crossing out and a process of elimination and, and this very elaborate plan. And I generally want to say, you know, that's probably, there's some great skillfulness in doing that. But I think what you need to do is, is do what I call first things first. Stop. Rediscover. Rediscover that place in you that is, that is always already okay. Stop. Notice. Put your mind in your body. Let the dust settle a little bit. This may not be, feel to you like the most productive thing you ever did. But if you put your mind in your body, 
orient yourself to the present moment. And you do it in a continuous way to the extent that you can, or at least some formal way every day. Say, I am, this is the, the way I'm going to, the way out of this predicament is to go right into the middle of it, is to see what is my real experience on present evidence. What is my present experience? And just as this, the famous sutra from the Buddha, the Satipatthana Sutra says, if you put your mind in your body, your, or if, if you direct your attention to your breathing, to your sensations, to your moods, your body will be calm, your mind will be calmed, nervous system will be calmed. They, he, doesn't, he didn't use the word nervous system. They, I don't think they had that expression. <laughs> but nevertheless, we can all recognize for ourselves. This is one of those things that, it, that the faith in it, the faith in ourselves, the faith in practice, the faith in life, gratitude for life even, uh, comes through a kind of verified experience. It doesn't come from adopting a view, yeah, it's good to be present, it's good to wake up out of the, and to see the difference between the, the field guide book that your mind is playing and the, and the actual um, direct experience of yourself as a person. That's a great idea, but it's not until you actually do it. And when you do it, there is something, often the first thing, as Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, the first thing that will happen is you'll feel sad. And your eyes will produce a tear. And we're sad. We could talk all night about why you might be sad, but I think this is just the opening of the heart. It's the opening of the mind. And there's often a little sadness from having been, having missed ourselves for so long. You know that old Basho poem, a Japanese poet, when in Kyoto the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. And uh, we start to, we feel this kind of longing for what we've just recovered. That's a strange human heart-opening experience. But it is this kind of settling, this kind of reawakening to that deathless within us, that timeless presence, that heartfulness, which is just our natural home, that to me, seems to be the counterintuitive doorway to our creativity, to the, the solving of whatever the existential creative dilemmas of our life. Things fall into place magically. And it's, I don't know how to explain it, but other, other than to say, whenever I, I was noodling or ruminating or obsessing, compulsively thinking about something. I never solved anything. But when the dust settled, all of a sudden, the, the sky opened. And the Buddha says, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And, it's, and when that mind shines brightly, he also said it's not affected by whatever visits. You can then let everything float through your mind and it doesn't stick. And there's a sense of joy and a sense of freedom that um, 
that gives us a sense that, you know, we don't have to solve everything. It's already solved in just being at home with myself. And then perhaps if I go back to my existential issues or my creative problems, they're not, I, there's not so much pressure. There's not so much pressure that I have to, that whatever it is has to make me happy. That's all our story. It's got my whole compulsive story is it's got to make me happy. As Mal- Maladoma, wonderful East African uh, healer, sh- shaman, says, it's, this is all just the voice of disembodiment. I'll read to you something he wrote. I was trying to figure out a way how to fit this in tonight. I'm so happy I get to. <laughs> See, I am like a kid sometimes with, this, with Dharma. It's so fun to share things. Anyway, thank you for the opportunity. Again, Maladoma Somme. As we have seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within a conceptual world of their own making, attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into the continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. As noted, the more disembodied we are, the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes. In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are, not just from our emotions, but from a feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of personalism. Everything is about me, narcissism and individualism. I'm a free agent with no inherent ties or obligations to anyone or anything found in modern societies. The the personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied, individualistic, personalistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a larger, less individualistic context. Just for example, this is, he expands, and this is going beyond the scope of what I was talking about, but he talks about um, emotions within a different transcendent frame of reference. He says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about just one person alone, but rather about the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. Each of our individual emotions are a call, a reminder of what all of us need to remember. And what all of us need to remember, I think, as a collective, is to put our mind back in our body is to be less embodied, is to come home to ourselves, is to wake up, wake up out of just being in the narrative about ourselves, just being in our life situation, and being much more in reality, which is, um, can't really be put in words. can only be experienced directly. And if we can connect in this way, back in our bodies, back in our hearts, then the natural thing to do is to, is to feel love and to, 
to want to help. And this circles around again to the what happened here last year uh, on, the, on my birthday. My birthday did fall on a Tuesday night last year, and some of you were here, but, but there we had a big, I was quite surprised by it, but it was a, a big celebration. And one of the, uh, there was a person who came and did some, some kirtan, some chanting, and one of the kirtan songs was a song that has been, I would say, one of my anthems of my, of my life and my practice, and it's the words of a teacher, a master, a Hindu master named Neem Karoli Baba. And in that, in that uh, chant, or the words that were turned into a, a chant, Neem Karoli Baba says, and I'll just tell you the words now, maybe we'll chant them later. He says, I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee, oh, crystal tears, taking away my fears. So the way I've always understood this is when, I'm, when I am in that sense of embodied presence in my heart, I feel a deep kinship and connection with the life around me, which is easily lost when I'm in my individualistic, as Maladoma says, personalistic, narrow universe. And when I, uh, and when I am in that sense of kin- connection, uh, the whole world is my home, and all are my family. Uh, I live in every heart. And that's, I think it's true for everyone who stops and keeps quiet, looks within, informally and formally. And it's something that each of us can do in a continuous way. And what gives our life the ultimate meaning, then, is, is, our, is our compassion. First, our self-compassion. We develop that sympathy for ourselves, that that sadness, we open to that heart of sadness that, that where we miss ourselves. When we go, oh, or when we feel our hurt or our, our uh, fear and somehow learn to embrace ourselves. Actually, I, before I read the, from the Dalai Lama, I want to read a little bit from, read a story I read about three, four months ago. Uh, to me, a very touching story of self-compassion. And this is something that we can train ourselves in. It's, all about getting real with our, with our tender hearts. It's a story entitled, Two More Isles. So, please bear with me if you've heard this before. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss. And the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we have half the aisles left to go to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. And, that, and when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. 
When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there, there was no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. Now, how, when was the last time you spoke to yourself that sweetly, that patiently? This is what happens when we, <laughs> when, when we come back to our, our human experience, our, human, our humanness. And then that compassion both turns inward and it turns outward. As the Dalai Lama says, compassion is what makes our life, our lives meaningful. It is the source of all lasting happiness and joy. And it is the foundation of a good heart, a heart of one whom acts out of the desire to help others. Through kindness, through affection, through honesty, through truth and justice toward all others, toward all others, we ensure our own benefit. So partly the reason I read all of that is uh, I was thinking about Neem Karoli Baba and this chant, I'm like the wind, no one, no one uh, can hold me. Uh, I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears taking away my fears. That's, those are his words, but his main teaching was love serve, and remember. So love ourselves, love each other every day. That's what we need to practice. Serve, see where help is needed. And this is, I think, I don't know, I think it's, is it, this is some kind of one earth week or there's a particular name for this week of remembrance of the dire situation of our planet. And what each of us can do to limit our, our impact. One person at a time, one care at a time about how we, like I've been making, I don't really want to drink Orangina. It's got corn syrup in it. Corn syrup's not good for you. But I made a commitment not to buy plastic. So this was the only thing that was drinkable in glass. Now that may seem like not a very big deal, Whatever I can do to limit the amount of plastic that gets that has to go through the whole decomposition chain and pollution chain, every little thing helps. And I think every day that's one of the things that we can do to serve, to serve each other and to serve our world and our planet and, and just have our eyes open. See if we can be... Uh, I call myself a Dharma slave. Be a slave to what's needed. 
it's the, definitely the recipe for happiness. And it doesn't mean that you have to be part of some kind of social movement. It can be anywhere. It's the, it, if, it, if that is the hub around which you live your life, right in the middle of the most hardcore corporation, you can be loving people up, being of some benefit, some service. How's that? <laughs> So it's, it's not about the form it takes. It's really about what's in our heart. So love, serve, and remember. And so remember the first two is, is one. But remember, perhaps most of all, remember that in you that is unshakable, immovable, that is free. Remember that ever-present wakefulness that cannot be shaken no matter what, what um, happens. Sounds don't shake it. Fires don't shake it. Birth and death do not shake it. And it's close. It's home. And it's simply a matter of being that wakefulness. Being that that nature, that awake nature. And don't forget it. Remember all the time. Let's see if there's anything else we want to remember. I think a good thing to remember... Well, while we're serving, I'll just back up and then we'll, we'll have a final prayer for the world from, a, from a, a rabbi. This is from David Brower from his book, Let the Mountains Talk, Let the Rivers Run, a call to those who would love to save the earth. Have a good time saving the world. Or you're just going to depress yourself. People want to be part of something fun. Put fun in the movement to conserve, preserve, and restore, and celebrate Earth, and people will, will run to sign up. So that's, to me, this is a message about, about ourselves. To not to become so angry and grim about the world, but to, but to have fun trying to, do, trying to do good. So last but not least, because we can try all we want, but we may not have a uh, healed world, a healed planet, a peaceful world, but we still send our blessings and we still wish with all our hearts and do everything we can to to help. And what helps most is to have a, a heart that is non-contentious. A heart that's open. So this is from Rabbi Harold Kushner. A prayer for the world. Let the rain come and wash away the ancient grudges. The bitter hatreds held and nurtured over generations. Let the rain wash away the memory of the hurt, the neglect. Then let the sun come out and fill the sky with rainbows. Let the warmth of the sun heal us wherever we are broken. Let it burn away the fog so that we can see each other clearly. So that we can see beyond labels, beyond accents, gender, or skin color. 
Let the warmth and brightness of the sun melt our selfishness so that we can share the joys and feel the sorrows of our neighbors. And let the light of the sun be so strong that we will see all people as our neighbors. Let the earth, nourished by rain, bring forth flowers to surround us with beauty. And let the mountains teach our hearts to reach upward to the divine. Amen. So may we all open our hearts to each other and all beings everywhere. And may all beings be benefited by our practice tonight and every day of our lives. Thanks for listening. First things first. Come home. I've got some zebra, oh zebra corn. Oh boy. Thank you so much. How sweet is that? Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. That's so dear. Thank you. Oh yeah, help yourself. Okay. I work with struggling parents. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Did I ask you a question? Sure. I just kind of need a medicine. Is it common when you go into your body and you have? Anxiety to feel it resting in there. Like I feel it in my arms and my legs. Yeah. You'll find that a lot, but it's, you could try to try to let it be felt for a little bit. Okay. But then after, uh, 